Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Hello, and welcome to the first ever AJC Passport live show. We're recording at the AJC Global Forum here in Jerusalem with an audience of more than 350 incredible campus leaders. <laughs> Undergraduates from schools across the United States and around the world. Do we have anyone from around the world here? <laughs> are, are there any French students in the house? Are there any German students in the house? Um, our guest today, our guest today is journalist and author Mati Friedman. His most recent book is Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier's Story of a Forgotten War, a beautifully written memoir about Israel's involvement over decades in South Lebanon. Uh, let me just note that it was a um, notable book uh, for the New York Times in 2017 um, and on the top 10 list uh, of Amazon.com that year. Earlier in his career, Mati spent five years as a journalist for the Associated Press, where he covered Israel and the Palestinian territories. Everyone, please give it up for Mati Friedman. <laughs> Mati, we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it feels like the news is always in the news. Uh, each side is concerned about media coverage, right? Uh, uh, you know, I, I live in New York, I get the New York Times, I can't tell you how many times I hear, you know, my um, pro-Israel friends and family in synagogue, uh, work, uh, people where I work are pretty pro-Israel, uh, talking about, you know, this or that that they quibble with in the, in the Times. Uh, but, but I also see online that there are people who are partisans on the other side of the conflict um, who, uh, who, are, who are angry at the New York Times. Um, you uh, wrote an essay in, uh, in 2014 in The Atlantic where you talked a little bit about uh, how this happens, what this means. Can you, can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I think that anyone who's interacting with Israel from outside of Israel has to confront the, um, the secondhand nature of the information that you're getting. So one of the great things about living here, and I've been here for 23 years. I came here when I was 17. I was born in Toronto. I don't know if there are any Canadians uh, around. If so, they're quiet and polite um, and there, not there making any noise. <laughs> there are actually 200 Canadians here, but they're so quiet, no one has noticed that. Um, I, uh, I came here in 1995, and um, one of the great things about living here is that you interact with the country, um, you interact with the country in a first-hand way, and you're not dependent on this very problematic pipeline of, of information, whether it's more liberal media or um, more right-wing media. Um, you just kind of look out your window and you can see what's happening in the country. But most of the people in this room don't have that, don't have that luxury. And the way the media works, or the way the press works, um, is something worth knowing, not just for people who are interested in this country, but for people who are involved citizens of the world. Everyone needs to understand where, you, where the information is coming from and how it's shaped, and that's a huge issue in the United States right now, the blizzard of disinformation and the idea of fake news and the kind of attacks on the press by, by the administration. And this has become a big, big issue. So I went into the press corps here in Israel. I started to work for the AP, which 
many of you probably know the AP is the American news agency, the Associated Press. It's uh, one of the biggest news organizations in the world, along with Reuters. Um, I, worked, I, I went into the AP fairly naive about the way press coverage works. And I came out very cynical at the end of 2011. And the cynicism that I had <laughs> kind of racked up over my time in the press corps was expressed in the essay that, that you're mentioning. And I, I found two main problems with the way the, um, the press operates. Maybe I should just say, just to save you guys guessing um, my political leanings, I'm from the left side of the political spectrum in Israel. So I uh, don't vote for any of the parties that are currently in the coalition government in Israel. Uh, I wish we had a different government. I'm just telling you that so you don't have to um, guess about where I'm coming from or so that you don't mistake what I'm going to say for some kind of right-wing tirade. Um, uh, there, there are two ways that the coverage gets warped. One is the scope of the coverage, how much is covered, how much you hear about Israel in the news. And the second part is the content of, of the coverage. And uh, I unpacked both of those things in, in those essays. I don't know how much detail uh, you want to go into right now, um, but because I'd been inside the press system for more than, more than five years, almost six years, uh, I could talk about examples that I'd had as a journalist, uh, staffing numbers, uh, strange journalistic decisions that might not have been exactly journalistic decisions, um, all of which contributed to my realization that the story being told about Israel was essentially a fictional story or a heavily fictionalized uh, narrative that was actually misleading people about what was going on in the country. And after, um, you know, whatever it was, five and a half years, I felt that I couldn't, I couldn't really do it anymore. And if I was going to tell the, 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 the country's story, I was going to have to do it on my own. And that's what I've been doing since then. I've been writing books and kind of working um, more, as, more as a freelancer, which is really the only way to say what you want and not being slave to someone else's narrative about what's going on. And, and just recently you wrote... Uh an op-ed uh, where you talked about how the story that is told about Gaza and about Hamas is, is also a fictionalized narrative. So uh, often we talk about dual narratives and how it's important to appreciate both sides, and, and I, I think it is important, uh, but uh, I, I guess would you say that what the lay people know, uh, what someone who does not invest themselves in this conflict, what they know about, um, about what goes on here in Israel and, and the Palestinian territories is essentially wrong? If I have to answer that with one word, I would say yes. <laughs> but you can use more than one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, um, the reporters have a problem. I don't know if any of you have ever worked as reporters. Can we see? Actually, as a show of hands, uh, how many people write for a newspaper? College paper or a high school paper? Anyone planning to be a journalist? Talk to me afterward, just, <laughs> and I'll talk just, you out of Just it. for the record, uh, many hands went up. Um, <laughs> this is radio. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're a reporter, you have a problem, which is that you uh, need to tell a simple story. So you might have a 600-word news story. Uh, that's what they have room for in your paper. You might have um, a 90-second TV spot. That's a pretty average length for a TV spot. Um, it, back in the old days of like 2009, 2010, so medieval times, basically, we used to complain at the AP about only having 600 words. And in 2018, 600 words is like, who, who would even read that? You know? right. It has to be 280 characters. So 600 you, characters would be amazing. That's right. So you have to fit reality into these very simple slots. But the problem is that reality doesn't lend itself to simple slots. So even if you just take the city that you're from and, and try, to, um, try to explain what the story is of that city, let's just take New York. What is the New York story in a 90-second you know, TV spot? What is the story in New York? Is it finance? Is it immigration? Is it crime? Is it culture? 
sports. Um, it could be any number of, of, of things, but you, you need to make it simple. So reporters covering Israel or covering any international story have to arrive at a simplified narrative. They need a simple story with predictable characters, if possible, with a good guy and a bad guy, something that delivers an emotional punch to people. And, and they've, that's what's been done here. And I don't think it's been done by evil people sitting around a table and kind of you know, having a conspiracy to defame Israel. It's, it's been a process over many years, perhaps even, even decades, um, uh, in which a, a, a highly simplified, I think even, even fictional, as not too... Um, it's not, uh, not too extreme a word. A story about Israel has been created in which there's a, a, a conflict here between Israelis and Palestinians. I'm gonna give you the news story just in very simplified form. There's a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, the conflict is rooted in something that happened in 1967. That's the occupation. And if the occupation were to be reversed, there would be peace. Okay, more or less, that's the news story. You usually won't see it spelled out in such a clear way, but that's the foundation narrative, and I myself wrote dozens, if not hundreds, of stories based on that understanding, and that's the understanding that millions of people in the West have about this country, not just average people reading the press, but you know, diplomats, governments, Western governments, um, governments of, of Western Europe believe something along those lines. The last U.S. administration believed that, more or less. As for the current one, it's very hard for me to say um, from here. Um, maybe you guys know, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and if you look at that, if you look at that narrative with the eyes of someone who knows something about this country, you'll see that it's almost entirely fictional. What do I mean? There isn't an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I know that sounds crazy because everyone thinks there is, including Israelis and Palestinians who talk about the conflict in that way. But most of Israel's wars haven't been fought against Palestinians. Israel fought wars against Egyptians and Jordanians and Iraqis and Lebanese and others. Israel's most potent enemy at the moment is Iran. Right? The Iranians aren't Palestinians. So clearly there's a broader conflict going on in which Israelis and Palestinians are two of the components but not the only components. The problem is that that doesn't fit into a simple story. So it's framed to be a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians when in fact it's a much more complicated conflict. So just to give you an example, have you ever heard of the America-Italy War of 1944? American troops were dying in Italy in 1944. But you've never heard of the America-Italy War because it was called the Second World War. Um, and if you want to understand why Americans were in Italy, you have to understand Germany, and you have to understand Russia, and you have to understand Britain, and you have to understand Japan, which has very little to do with Italy. You have to understand a broad conflict in which there are many players, and then you can begin making sense of, of those two uh, actors, Americans and Italians, and neither would make sense in isolation. And a similar trick has been played here. If you uh, only understand this as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, nothing makes sense about the conflict, particularly nothing makes sense about my my position in the conflict as an Israeli. So in, in that framing of the conflict, one side is stronger and one side is weaker, that's true. One side is more numerous and one side less, so that's true. That's all true, one side is more Western and one side less, and that's, that's all true if you frame it like this, if you're on really tight zoom. And if you zoom out to the level of the Middle East, you'll see the, the broader context that I, that I described. Uh, and then the conflict looks looks different. So Israelis, who are a majority uh, on the territory controlled by Israel, are in fact a very small minority in the broader Middle East. There are six million Jews in Israel, and there are about 330 million people in the Arab world. If you zoom out further to the level of the Islamic world, we're talking about roughly a, a billion and a half, so a quarter of the people on earth, give or take. So Israelis don't feel like a majority. We feel like an endangered minority, and none of that is visible if the story is framed the way it's framed. And the idea that the, the conflict here is rooted in something that happened in 1967, which is one of the key elements of the news story. It's 
it's, it's clearly false, right? There was a conflict here before 1967. <laughs> there were conflicts here in the 50s and in the 40s and in the 30s and in the 20s, and depending how, how far you want to go back, the Palestine Liberation Organization was founded in 1964. The occupation only starts in 1967. So clearly we're talking about a conflict that is both broader and older than the conflict we're being described, described that we're being um, sold, I guess, in this um, heavily simplified news story, which, which actually has very little uh, to do with what's going on. And if you come at this place and the conflict using press coverage as your guide, nothing will make sense. Lati, you speak about how important it is to think about the framing of the, um, of the conflict. Um, one thing that I think about, I, I often, I lead um, groups of, uh, of Americans, internationals here to Israel through AJC. You and I actually first met when I was bringing a group of, of Rhodes Scholars from Oxford uh, to Israel on AJC's Project Interchange. Um, I, I feel like there's something people have to unlearn, that, that false narrative, and, and I think it's actually different depending on where you come from. I think that in America, so much of our garbage that we wrestle with as a country is, is tied to race uh, because of that kind of you know, uh, original sin of, of America. Um, I think that in Europe, it's often tied to colonialism. Um, and, and so I think that you know, Americans have this uh, predisposition to see what's happening here as a racial conflict. Isra uh, Europeans have this predisposition to, to typify it as a, as a colonial conflict. Do you, do you think that, that there is this kind of different thing that needs to be unlearned from each, uh, from each you know, population that sees the world? Do you, do you ever encounter Asian audiences, African audiences that have a radically different view of, of Israel than, than you know, we in this room might be, might be familiar with? Yes, I'll answer the last part of the question first, which is I was in China uh, two years ago and I was on a flight back, uh, back home from, from, uh, from Beijing and I was sitting next to two Chinese uh, university students, young students who are leaving China for the first time to go to university in Hungary but educated people who were going to university and um, they spoke some English and they wanted to know where I was from. And I said, Israel, and they'd never heard of it. <laughs> um, they wanted me to write it on their iPad so they could see the word. And I wrote Israel, no, didn't ring any bells. I wrote Jerusalem, nothing. And they asked me if it's in Asia or not, which is a good question. Kind of, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's often refreshing to leave the kind of the, the cocoon of the Western world and go elsewhere and remember um, I was in a cab once in Bangkok and for some reason the cab driver asked me what's my religion. That was interesting to him and I said Judaism. He had never heard of Judaism. He said what, what is it? And at the end I just said it was, it's like, he said, I said do you know Christianity? And he said yes, he knows that. So I said it's like Christianity but no Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That kind of thing. That was as, that was as um, complicated I could get, as I could get in a, in a cab ride. So we're talking about a we're talking about a Western problem, and I would guess I, I would extend the West in this case to include the Islamic world, um, which in both Christian civilization and Islamic civilization, Jews play a, a role, um, play an important role in the formation of those of those religions. Of course. You know, the New Testament is a heavily Jewish story, and there are a lot of Jews in the Quran as well. So Jews exist in the minds of these, of these religions in ways that are sometimes problematic. And I think if we look, if we, um, just look at the West, um, I don't think it's news to most of the people in this room that Jews have had a recurring problem in Western societies over centuries in different societies, different people, different times. What is that problem? The problem is that Jews somehow become identified by their host societies as being the bearers of certain problems. So if a society identifies um, a problem that preoccupies it at a given time, often Jews will be linked to that problem. 
um, or, or use as an illustration of that problem. For example, greed, that was a big one. Um, even earlier, certain theological problems in early Christianity were associated with Jews. Uh, legalism, a lack of compassion. Uh, it, it, problems that were kind of held up as, as a contrast to what you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe in compassion. And one way to explain things to people, if you need to explain to people who, who we are, one way to explain it is to say, we are not that guy. We represent one thing, that guy represents another thing. And in, uh, in, in Christian civilization in the West, that guy was often a Jew. So the Jews become identified as, as greedy. This gets carried over into modern times, into the Enlightenment. Many of the Enlightenment philosophers um, would describe their ideological opponents as, as Jewish or polluted by Judaism in some way. Um, Karl Marx invents communism, one of the most influential ideological systems ever invented, and he writes an incredible essay, which everyone should read. You can find it online. It's called On the Jewish Question, and he explains that his enemies um, are Jews. He says um, money is the god. He hates money. Money is the god of the Jews. Um, the, the Jewish religion is hucksterism, and mankind must be emancipated from not capitalism, which is what you'd expect Karl Marx to say, from Judaism. So Karl Marx identifies capitalism as being Jewish, and at the same time, people who are concerned with communism identify communism as Jewish. So for the communists, Jews are bankers, and for the capitalists, Jews are Bolsheviks. Uh, for the nationalists, Jews are cosmopolitans, and for universalists, Jews are tribalists. So these are contradictory characteristics. It's a way of thinking. It uses Jews as a blank screen onto which you project things that you do not like. Uh, and I think that's what's happening here in a, in a different form. What's the uh, organizing principle for liberal people in the West these days? And I would certainly put myself in that group. Uh, human rights, I guess. You know, it's not Catholicism anymore. It's not communism. But we're all supposed to believe in... Social justice, maybe. Social justice, rights. equality. So here's a very powerful story about a violation of human rights, um, about inequality. It's a story about issues that very much preoccupy the West, and it's told in slightly different ways. As you, as you pointed out, for Americans, it's a, race, it's a race story, and it's become increasingly accepted to describe Israel as, as racist, because that's a problem that preoccupies Americans for good reason, right? America has a terrible history with, with race. Um, for Europeans, it's often you know, about colonialism, which is also wrapped up in questions of, of race. Now, I wouldn't want any of this to be interpreted as me saying that we don't have any problems here. I think we. We have real problems here. There's real inequality here, and much of it's our fault. We've mishandled all kinds of aspects of, of the conflict, and not every decision that, that we've made has been right. But our, our problems are not America's problems, and they're not Europe's problems. The problem here is not colonialism, and it's not race in the way Americans understand it. If you walk around Israel, um, you can't tell who's Jewish and who's Arab. It's not a racial difference in the way people people imagine. It's a different kind of problem, which is not to say that it's necessarily better or worse, but when people read their own issues into it, which is what people are doing, the place becomes in incomprehensible. But that's what people want to do. People want to come here, and instead of grappling with this complex, you know, very confusing, I think, basically amazing, but very confusing little country, that's hard, right? That takes years. You have to learn Hebrew. You have to be here for a long time. Instead, what you can do is you can bring your baggage from home and you know, and read it here. So here's, um, here's an Israeli soldier, so he'll be the white guy, and here's a Palestinian, he'll be the black guy. Or here's the Israeli soldier, he's the British colonialist, and here's the Palestinian, he's, you know, the Indian under British domination. And that's a very powerful narrative technique, and that is what drives the unique response to, to Israeli actions in, in the West. 
I, I think what's interesting is, is you know, we frame this primarily, and, and it, was, it was my framing perhaps, uh, about how, the, how those on, on the left misunderstand Israel and, and come to criticize Israel. And, and I think that, that those people would say that they're constitutionally opposed to, to anti-Semitism, they just criticize Israel. Now, uh, on the flip side, you have the problem of the far right, right? Where they uh, will tell you how much they admire Israel, but they're also kind of anti-Semitic. Uh, but, but that admiration for Israel comes out of the same misunderstanding, right? It's almost by, by, by flipping the scenario, we can see, uh, I would suggest that, um, you know, the alt-right in America sees a bunch of light-skinned folks beating up on a bunch of dark-skinned folks and says like, those guys have the right idea. Well, we wish America were more like that, which is which is abhorrent to us, obviously. Um, but um, but 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 that that's you know that that's that confusion uh, as well. Um, I wanna I wanna change gears to uh, to something else entirely uh, because I, I don't want to leave our audience with the impression that you are are one note in any way. Note. Um, I want to talk about music, actually, uh, speaking of notes, uh, because um, Mati um, writes uh, so beautifully. By the way, I could, I could put a, a full stop right there. Mati writes so beautifully. Yeah, why period. don't you just stop right there? And, and everyone should read his books. Truly, Pumpkin Flowers, the Aleppo Codex are, are incredible. And I highly recommend them. Um, Mati writes so beautifully and has written so beautifully about um, music, in particular the Mizrahi music scene, I'm not gonna define that term, I'll let you define that term, uh, but the Mizrahi music scene here in Israel, and how important that is to understanding this country. So, can you tell us about that? I thought for a moment you were gonna ask me to sing. That's Please. What the, <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't mind, right? I'm just gonna do a few numbers that I am. Um, no, um, I think that one of the main, I think one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing that, that people need to understand about this country when trying to figure it out, um, and I think it's something that's particularly hard for North Americans, um, particularly North American Jews. The North American Jewish community is almost entirely Ashkenazi. It, it comes almost entirely from, from Europe, mostly Eastern Europe, uh, which is my own, that's my own family background. Israeli society, Jewish society in Israel is very different. Half of the Jews in Israel come from the Islamic world. So half of the Jews in Israel are you know, as Middle Eastern as anyone else in, in the Middle East. And as you spend more and more time in this country, you realize more and more how important that is. And it's one of the main reasons I think that often people come in here, even people who feel a very strong affinity to, to Israel, and they find the place confusing. It doesn't feel like home, right? There's no, it's not bagels and locks, you know, it's not American Judaism. It's so, it's so different. It doesn't feel like Europe, really, or it doesn't feel like, like America. And that's because not only do we have a 20% Arab Muslim minority in Israel, half of the Jews in Israel are, are basically Middle Eastern. And one way of understanding this is by looking at the music that everyone listens to. And I got clued into this by my kids, who a few years ago, they just started bringing home, uh, they're pretty little, but they started bringing home music that they heard and listening to it. And they would ask me to put on certain, certain songs. And it was all from this pop genre called Mizrahi. The word Mizrahi in Hebrew means Eastern. That's a very kind of uh, simplified term for anyone who comes from the Islamic world. Jews who come from the Islamic world are called Eastern, even though if you look at a map, you'll see that Casablanca, which is a quintessentially Eastern city, is actually to the west of London. So it's not actually a geographic <laughs> distinction. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of distinction. But the, the dominant pop genre in Israel right now and for the past maybe 10 years has been what we would call Mizrahi. And if you turn on the radio, that's what you, you'll hear. And if you turn on our equivalent of um, 
of MTV. Um, that's, that's what you'll see, and it's a genre that's uh, heavily influenced by Arab music, but also has a lot of Greek music in it, and also has a lot of Western influences. And it used to be a kind of um, gutter culture. So the keepers of Israeli culture used to look down on this music as kind of as, as primitive, and it was largely kept off the These radio. These keepers were the founders of the state, right? Founders of the state who wanted a European country. The, the story that we tell about Israel to this day is a European story. So it's a story about Herzl and the kibbutz and socialism and the Holocaust. Um, but that's only half of, of the story. And in fact, if you try to understand Israel's story by understanding those things, you won't be able to understand the country because the, the country, I think, can only be understood today as a Middle Eastern country because you have half of the, half of the Jewish population here is Middle Eastern in, in origin and the other half has mostly been born in the Middle East. So you have kids like mine who are you know, genetically Ashkenazi but very Middle Eastern in their tastes and in their, and in their behavior. And one way of looking at that is, is by understanding Mizrahi music and why everyone listens to it. So I've written some stories about it. No one takes it seriously in Israel because it's really pop. It's, the words are you know, usually drivel and um, it's, all, it's dance music. It's about having a good time. Um, and so no, no one really devotes much analysis to it. But if you do devote analysis to it, it's fascinating. And it's a fascinating window onto that aspect of, of the society, which is interesting for two reasons. One, because we want to understand Israel, and it, it cannot be understood if you don't understand that aspect of Israeli society. And two, because of something that you mentioned earlier, which is that Israel is being held up in parts of the West as an example of a white colonialist um, implant in the Middle East. And anyone who knows Israel knows that's ridiculous, and you can see it's ridiculous just by walking around the street. It, Israel is as Middle Eastern as it is uh, European, and I think it's important for everyone to to understand that, um, you know, for all the reasons that I mentioned. Um, we're gonna come to audience questions in, in just a moment, um, but let me just ask one more question and, and give you guys a, a chance to, to think up some excellent questions of your own. Um, Matthew, we have more than 350 campus leaders here in the audience today who came here to Jerusalem, to AJC Global Forum, to be better informed and equipped as advocates for Israel. Uh, for Israel, uh, for the Jewish people. Um, how can they apply your lessons to their work on campus? That's a tricky question for me. Um, you are not an advocate, right? I don't want to put that label on you. Right. Uh, so I, I try to keep a very clear line between, uh, between what I do, which is, which is journalism and advocacy. I think both are important, by the way. But when I'm, as a journalist, a lot of what I write is critical of Israel. And if you read the books that I wrote about Israel, they're not all, you know, I have a deep abiding love for this country. And coming here when I was 17 was the best, you know, one of the best. Um, just so I don't, you, just have, so, you have a wife and just children. So I don't offend <laughs> one of the best decisions I've ever made, but much of what I read is critical because as a journalist, that's, that's our job. And there are deep flaws in this country and they need to be addressed and they need to be described. And um, that's a journalistic role. And when I critique the, the press and the way that it has mishandled the Israel story, I'm doing that as a journalist because I believe the press needs to be subject to journalism just like everyone, just like everyone else. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't want to be mistaken for someone who only says good things about, but Israel, that's not what I do. Um, I, I think that there's, if, there's one thing that I, would, that I would say, which is that often I think people trying to defend Israel or express sympathy for Israel find themselves in a trap, which is that they're being, they're playing defense, right? You're being asked to defend policies. What, what's going on in Gaza? What are you doing in Gaza? What are the Israelis doing in the West Bank? What's the story on the, on the fence? What's the story with the settlements? And you find yourself as 
an American or a Canadian or a, or, or a German um, on on a on a playing field where you can't um, you can't function, right? People, even Israelis, would find it hard to answer all these questions, and there's just no way you're going to you're going to have a handle on uh, on every Israeli policy and be able to defend it. And sometimes the policies are indefensible. Sometimes they're they're wrong, and it's hard to know which um, which is which. So I uh, I always tell people, and this is what I practice too, is that. Um, don't play, you don't play defense in a, in a situation like that. There might be somewhere a country that can judge the state of Israel, but I've never been there, and it's certainly not the United States of America or, or Canada or any country in, in Europe. Um, I think that if you um, are kind of subject to an, to an attack or an aggressive line of questioning about Israel, the best thing to do is kind of to turn the tables. One, one question I like to ask Americans, for example, is do you know how many civilians your military has killed in the past year? I've, I've asked that question hundreds of educated and involved Americans. I've never met a single person who knows the answer. Is it 500? Is it 5,000? But Americans aren't interested in that. And often you'll have these discussions about, about, about Israel with people who are, you know, kind of, they have a whole lot of knowledge, much of it wrong about Israel, but they, they take this very seriously. And then you ask them, well, do you know what your own military is up to? I mean, a, a report came out um, not long ago about civilian deaths in, in Mosul, in the coalition uh, air campaign. Their coalition meaning mostly American. We're talking about 8,000, 9,000 deaths. Americans don't care about it. They're not interested in it. Uh, and if you kind of turn the tables in that way and say, you know, why don't you know this? Why are you so interested in this country and, and so uninterested in your own country? You're from Manhattan. That's interesting. Do you know what language Manhattan is? You're from Massachusetts. Do you know what language Massachusetts is? Does that mean anything? The, the people who called Massachusetts, Massachusetts, where are they? Do you have any, um, any debt? to them if they're still around? Have you ever thought about it? That, no, that's so interesting. So what explains your interest in this when you know so little about yourself? That's a better conversation to have than finding yourself in a, in a position of saying, well, this settlement was built in 1971 for security reasons. I mean, it's, uh, it's hopeless. And usually the line of questioning isn't really about that, about that anyway. Uh, Israel's kind of being singled out and inflated and subject to scrutiny that no other country on earth is subject to, including the United States. And the conversation should be about about that. I think that's a more productive conversation to have than, you know, the classic defense. Uh, we have a microphone somewhere. And uh, do you have questions? Just raise your hand. And just uh, introduce yourself when you ask your question. Okay, hello. I'm Leandro from Argentina. I'm coming from Buenos Aires. And I find very interesting your approach. And I was wondering, as, you know, Argentina has a very different college life than the US or Canada. What I'm thinking about is how can we apply some of your view, your, you know, your approach to South America, Latin America? Thank you. I wish I knew South America well enough to answer <laughs> that question. I've never, I've never been there. Uh, and Israel is welcome never to, to come. South America. When? <laughs> Whenever you want. We'll be there no, next, let's get specific. next month. That's a, a generous <laughs> offer of plane tickets from Leandra. We'll talk about that. <laughs> I don't know. We're still insulted about the national team, uh, so I don't know if I can come to Argentina right now. We as well. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a great question because I think each culture has a different way of talking about this, for, but for some reason, countries, you know, vastly different countries like Argentina, like, you know, France, 
have an interest in this, in this place. They share uh, a disproportionate interest in what goes on here. And it's because of the civilizational baggage that's involved. And um, I think that, you know, as I said, when, when I answered the last question, it's best to make people think about that baggage than, than play defense for, for Israel. Um, because I, I don't think most people are, are gonna be in a position to do that. And because, you know, why, why should you really? And it, it, I think it would be better and more, more effective and more productive for the person on the other side for them to think about why they're so interested in this. And you know, they come from a civilization that has a history of, um, of disproportionate interest in, in Jews and in partic particular in Jewish moral failing. And now they're interested in a country called Israel and the moral failings of a country called Israel. Is that coincidence or not? That's kind of interesting. And have that conversation and get people to think about what, what motivates their interests, why people get so much angrier about this than they do about other things. You know, the, the Russians can invade Crimea. Uh, there are no protests in the West, right? There's no anti-Russian boycott. And Turkey can attack the Kurds, uh, either in Turkey or in Syria. Many of the Kurds in Turkey consider themselves occupied by, by the Turks. Um, Turkish academics have no problems. Right? It's not, there, there isn't the same instinct that, um, that people have about, about Israel and Israeli actions. And if you get people to investigate that, that strange, that strange difference, um, then you'll be leading them into a more, to more effective conversation. I'll just throw a statistic at you. Um, people have the idea that this is a place of conflict, that this is one of the most important conflicts in the world. That's the way it's covered. When I was a reporter for the AP Bureau here, it was the AP's biggest international bureau. You're saying in terms of number of journalists? Number of staff. We had more people here than we had in China. We had more people here than we had in all of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa combined. That, that kind of intense interest can be quantified if you look at the numbers of, of reporters who, who report here. And people have the idea that there's a, there's a terrible conflict going on here, but if you look at, yeah, you know, let's just take Jerusalem, for example. Jerusalem is the center of the conflict and it's internationally renowned, unfortunately for us, as a city of, con a city of conflict. That's the way it's covered. But if you look at the number of fatalities in the city last year, Jerusalem's a city of about 860,000. And if you take every fatality in the city, so we had stabbing attacks, um, the, the victims of those attacks and the perpetrators of those attacks who were killed in some cases by our security forces, and if we take domestic homicide, criminal homicide, every single person who died within the city limits in Jerusalem in 2017, the number is 27. We had 27 uh, violent deaths in the city. And just to give you a point of comparison, in Indianapolis, which is a city the same size as Jerusalem, the number of homicides was 175. It was seven times as high. And that's a, that's a standard American number. Jacksonville, Florida, another city the size of Jerusalem, had 133 homicides, five times as many as we had here in this internationally renowned city of conflict. So the interest is, is strange and needs to be unpacked and can't be taken at face value. So in an argument like that, or if you're being made to answer, don't take the, don't take the attack at face value. Try to unpack the attack and get the person who's talking to you to, to think more deeply about what, about what they're asking. Hi, Mr. Friedman. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, my name is Julia Greensfelder, and I'm a sophomore at Washington University in St. Louis. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about the ways in which Hamas uses propaganda and media framing to influence the international perception of the Israeli-Arab conflict and specifically the, Gaza, the conflict in Gaza. Thank you so much. That's a great question. And I, I wrote a bit about it in the New York Times op-ed that, uh, that Sefi mentioned. I think that often reporters here don't give Hamas enough credit as a player that's very sophisticated, that understands the media, and that knows how to tell a story. Uh, there, my, from my own experience in the press corps, Hamas 
gets the, the, the press corps better than the press corps gets itself. And they know the story that, that people want and they, they give it to them. And I think we're seeing one example of it on the fence, in the Gaza fence over the past two months where Hamas has been basically staging these kind of deranged spectacles where uh, there are these mass protests involving thousands of people and some of the people try to breach the border fence with Israel, understanding, as everyone does, that if you try to get through the fence into Israel, you'll be shot. And they do it at the, the border, which is a, a place that's very easy to film. And the images that that has generated have been shocking, legitimately shocking, and have done Israel a tremendous amount of damage, as they know when they engineer the, the event. And, and one of the flaws of the press corps is that the reporters find it very hard to, uh, to report stories that involve reporting the press. So if you understand that Hamas has a press strategy that involves uh, death and mayhem being filmed by the international press, that's their strategy, then you have to ask, you have to start looking at yourself. You have to start asking questions like, what is the role of the press here? Are we cooperating in Hamas's PR strategy? No, what the press does is in, instead it takes it at face value. It just says, here are dead people, Israelis shot these people, and, the Im and let, uh, they kind of let the image uh, do the do the talking, and when the image does the talking, the the the, the image is is shocking and devastating to to us in, in Israel because what I just explained, which is that it's a result of a strategy, is um, is not clear just from from the image. So I think that um, Hamas needs to be taken very seriously as um, as a, an organization that knows how to tell stories, and I think that in general we need to not be so quick to take at face value. Uh, it's probably not something I need to tell everyone in this room, but not, uh, we, don't, we can't be too quick to take at face value images that we're seeing. You'll see a shocking video circulating. It'll be 17 seconds. It'll show you something really disturbing. You don't know what happened. You don't know what happened before the 17 seconds. You don't know what happened after the 17 seconds. You know very little except that you've seen this very disturbing image. I'll give you an example. You know, the American army lands at Normandy in 1944 and starts moving inland. And as the American army advances, there are war crimes that are committed by American soldiers, mainly the murder of German prisoners. And this happens um, a fair bit. And had anyone seen video of that happening, it would be shocking. If anyone had you know, heard testimony from a soldier who took part in that, it would have been shocking. But it doesn't say anything about the justice of the invasion at Normandy or the advance of the American army into France, right? So a shocking image doesn't necessarily explain anything. It's just kind of a gut punch. And we're living in a world of gut, of gut punches. We're just bombarded with this stuff from all, from all sides. And being an intelligent observer of the world means not taking this stuff at face value. It means taking a few deep breaths um, and kind of thinking about what's, what's really going on. And I'll just say it again, just so I'm not misconstrued. What's really going on doesn't always make me look good as an Israeli, right? Sometimes what's going on makes me look bad, which is, which is fine. Um, but we all need to be very critical about, about what we're seeing. And if you're seeing Israel portrayed as kind of a malevolent actor committing evil because that's what we do, you can be pretty sure that that narrative isn't true and that something more, more complicated is going I, on. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add one note there, um, uh, if I may, which was um, I, I had this kind of weird experience where, where on the same day, two different friends um, uh, direct messaged me on Twitter. They each sent me uh, a tweet with a video attached to it. One of them was a video, uh, and he's, you know, uh, he's a, a bit to the left. One of them was a video of, um, of two Israeli soldiers holding um, probably a, the arm of like a five-year-old boy 
um, and kind of pulling him, and he's not really moving, and there's some people yelling at them in, he in Hebrew saying, you know, let him go, let him go, let him go. And he said, look, like I, you know, what do you say to this? And I, I said, like, I was, my answer is I, I don't know what I'm looking at. Right? Maybe the child wandered into a zone that was closed for some other reason, and they were, in the most humane way possible, trying to move him from that zone. Or maybe there was something far more nefarious and sinister going on. Um, just a few hours later, another friend, a bit to the right of me, sent me this video. I don't know how many of you heard about this uh, woman, uh, a nurse, a medic, who was uh, at the Gaza border, a Palestinian uh, medic who, who uh, was, was shot and, and unfortunately died. Um, and, and there was this video going around of her throwing some kind of canister of something. You know, uh, uh, what I said to him was, I don't know what I'm looking at. Right? Is, is she herself throwing a Molotov cocktail? Is she you know, somehow throwing some kind of uh, incendiary device at uh, Israeli troops? I, I truly don't know what I'm looking at from this, from this small clip. And so I, I was in this weird position uh, of you know, I'm hearing it on, on both sides. And, and, and you know, I, I am an advocate, so I, I will give people uh, a piece of advice and, and say, you know, ask that question more. What, what am I looking at? Do I really know what I'm what I'm looking at. Let's take another question. Hi, I'm Danielle Harris. I'm a student at Columbia University. Um, so my question was about uh, what you were talking about before in your um, Atlantic article um, about media sort of using foreign uh, paradigms or terms to describe um, a situation the way that they want to. Um, often on campus, it's using terms of like apartheid, um, things like that. Um, so when thinking about it, I could imagine that this would be um, familiar and would be a really effective tool um, for sort of getting foreign media to have their audience understand why it would be relevant to them or why they should care about this issue based on sort of precedent. Um, so, but like you mentioned, there's also an irresponsible sort of maybe misinformed way that they're representing something using other things. So do you think that there is a place for this sort of strategy and a responsibility for the media to do this, especially the foreign media when they want their own audiences to care about something? Or do you think that it's just sort of applying wrong terms on different things and adding to more misinformation? Thank you. That, that's a great question. And I would lean toward the latter. I think when people, you know, throw around terms like apartheid or, you know, they take, you know, American terms like Jim Crow or, you know, you, you can't just throw around terms, you know, throw terms around the world, you know, like the, the American economic system is pretty liberal, but it's not perestroika. You know what I mean, like, just doesn't, apartheid was a, a system that existed in South Africa under certain conditions. It was terrible in its own specific way. And you, you can't just throw it around. What that is, is really an epithet. That's, that's a word used by people who are not trying to explain, but who are trying to condemn, which is unfortunately a lot of what uh, even many reporters are, are doing. Many of the reporters are less observers than activists. They're trying to kind of sway you toward, toward their side and they'll, hint at that or say it outright, or in classic press fashion, they'll quote someone saying it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way you do it. Um, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this, but this guy's saying it, and here it is in my article. Um, and that's, um, that's it's, it, it's confusing. It's, it's just not gonna explain. Let's just say that it's, let's just say that it's right, and, and of course I don't think it is, but it just doesn't explain what's, what's going on here. What's going on here is a very complicated story in the Middle East involving dozens of, of actors in a very complicated region. Israel is one part of a very complex regional war. Uh, right, if you look at the Middle East, you'll see there's war across the region, including in 
places where there are no Jews and no, uh, no Jewish soldiers and no Jewish settlers. So clearly there's a regional problem here. I like to imagine it kind of like Belgium in the First World War. You have a continent that's at war and Belgium is in one corner of this war. Now Belgium can make good decisions and it can make bad decisions. And one would hope that Belgium would make good decisions, but it doesn't matter that much to the course of the war. And that's really what's going on here. We can have good leadership and we can have bad leadership. And unfortunately, I don't think our leadership is that great at the moment. And we can make good decisions or bad decisions. And many of our decisions have not been, not been great. Um, but it matters less than people think. Israel's decisions matter less than, than people think. And, and unfortunately... Um, Many Israelis, I think, like the idea that we're very important. So they like the idea that we're covered heavily by the press, and I think our prime minister really likes the, the attention, even if it's negative, when I think an, a, a rational observer of the world can only conclude that Israel is not very important. It's just one more crappy country on planet Earth. And I feel you know, strongly attached to it because it's my country, and you feel attached to it because it's the world's only Jewish country. But it's a tiny little place. It's one one-hundredth of one percent of the surface of the world. Uh, it has delusions of grandeur, which bizarrely are shared by a lot of other people, which is usually not <laughs> the case with delusions of grandeur. Um, but what we have here is just one complicated country um, in a very complicated situation, but that is not a powerful story, which is, I think, what you're getting at. Describing Israel as the Turks and the Kurds are described, or as Crimea is described, doesn't deliver that punch. It doesn't get people riled up. It doesn't draw the, the interest that, that people want to draw. What does draw the interest is presenting it at, in the way that you said, or that famous picture of the tank, the Israeli tank, and the Palestinian kid. That elicits an emotional response. That makes you want to do something. It makes you angry. The story is largely designed to make people angry, and that makes it very different from other, from other news stories, and it's a reason to be suspicious of the story. Let me, let me just follow up for, for a moment, Mati, because you use the word epithet, but some people might use the word analogy. Would, would there ever be cause for making a historical analogy from one thing to another? I, I assume you're not anti-analogy in, in general as we're, as we're analyzing you know, world events. I think you have to be very careful with it. I think you have to be very careful with it, especially if we understand that um, the, the role of Jews as the targets of kind of projection and so I think we need to be very careful when telling stories about Jews, in particular, telling stories about anyone, but in particular about Jews who've had this recurring problem which has had catastrophic consequences for Jews. Um, we have to be very careful that when we're talking about Jews, we're talking about actual people in scope, in proportion, in, in context. The second Jews start to become a symbol of something, a symbol of something negative, which is what's happened, right? Israel is a negative symbol on, on the left. Um, the second Jews kind of move into symbolic territory, huge red flashing warning lights should be going off. And unfortunately, if they're not, and, and people are persisting with the inflation of Israel into this symbol of you know, human rights um, villainy, just to you know, give you an example, the Human Rights Council at the UN has condemned Israel more times, not more times than any other country, which would be crazy, right? It's condemned Israel more times than all other countries in the world <laughs> combined. So something strange is going on and something that I think is reason for concern. I'm not an alarmist. I actually think that Israel's doing pretty well in, in most ways. I'm pretty bullish on, on Israel and I'm not you know, someone who panics easily. I think there's reason for, uh, for concern in this case. Hi there. Um, my name is Hillary Miller. I'm a student at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation and to Sefi for facilitating the conversation. I'm curious if you could go back and touch on uh, this dichotomy between advocacy and journalism 
maybe identify the goals and objectives of each and whether or not in your experience the two inherently conflict. Um, and yeah, just generally about the two paradigms. By the way, we have great students, don't we? <laughs> I, I don't know about all of them. I just haven't talked to all of them, but they seem great. Um, Amazing questions. Um, it's, a great, it's a great question. And yes, I think that there is a, a big difference between journalism and advocacy, even though I think many journalists would tell you otherwise. And what I experienced in, in the press corps was that there was confusion on precisely that point. That my understanding of journalism is that you're looking at a complicated situation and you're trying to explain it as best as you can with the tools you have. So I have 800 words. I'm going to try in those 800 words to, to accurately convey one piece of the complicated puzzle that is the place that I'm, that I'm covering. And sometimes that coverage is going to break one way and sometimes it's going to break another way. But at the end of a year of reading my coverage of, of Israel, people will, will know what's, or will have a handle on what's going on. Many, many journalists, and it's, this is not just you know, a, a problem on the left, many journalists see their job as journalists as, um, as advocating for what they think is right or kind of speaking truth to power. Many journalists will tell you that their job is speaking truth to power, which I think is incorrect. Your job as a journalist is to explain what's going on. And that is hard enough. It is hard to do that, right? Because once you start speaking truth to power, it gets complicated. Who's the power? Why that power and not another power? Um, if you're trying to help, right? A lot of journalists think they should help. Well, help who? and help how. And that's when things get very murky and it would be preferable to have knowledgeable people who understand that their job is not to help and not to advocate, but just to explain what's going on. And once people have a strong factual basis for what's going on, then the advocates can advocate and the politicians can do politics and you know, everyone can do what they're supposed to do. But once the, when the press becomes um, activist, no one can understand anything and that's what's happened. Matthew Friedman, thank you so much for joining us on AJC Passport. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Friedman. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? College. Good for the Jews? We're sitting here in Jerusalem with nearly 400 college students from all across the US and around the world. <laughs> in America, 80 to 90% of Jews attend college. Think about that. Is there anything else that you can say 90% of Jews do 90% of Jews don't even have a Passover Seder or light Hanukkah candles. People talk all the time about the dangers on college campuses. They call them anti-Semitic. But the students here don't think that. Do they ever encounter anti-Semitism? Maybe. But on the whole, they love their campuses and their communities. Jewish students go to college for all the usual reasons, to learn, to socialize, to broaden their minds. Historically, college and academic success has enabled the Jewish community to move beyond our immigrant roots, to enter the middle class, to live the American dream. Are there challenges being Jewish on campus today? Sure. But I can say without hesitation that college is good for the Jews. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud 
or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.